Welcome to Dear Reading Teacher, a podcast where I empower my fellow parents who want to teach their child to read and help you better navigate the early reading landscape today. I am your host and your reading teacher, Elizabeth Ford. Thank you for tuning in, and I know today's episode with my guest and the nation builder or first grade teacher will give you the confidence to teach your child to read. This is episode five, a parent-friendly checklist for science of reading resources with Mindful Teacher Rachel. Mindful Teacher Rachel is a first grade teacher, a teacher leader on Instagram, and an advocate for applying the science of reading research in American elementary classrooms. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Yay, I'm so happy you are here today. Where are you talking to us from today? Um, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. Awesome. Um, you've already mentioned this a couple times, but I've had a few guests from Georgia, so I just want to give Georgia and Southern Hospitality all the props um, <laughs> because um, I think it's not a coincidence. I also grew up um, half of my childhood in Georgia, and I just feel like um, education was always serious in that state. Um, that's what I always remember growing up. And so I feel that with these leaders that I get to talk to from Georgia. So thank you so much, Rachel, and your other colleagues and parent advocates that are also coming from your state. Thank you guys all for making education number one in your state, but also um, leading the way across the country. So what role, um, I guess we've already talked about your first grade teacher, but what brought you to the world of reading instruction? Because you teach all the subjects as a first grade teacher, but like, why are you so focused on reading? So I initially came to education prioritizing social emotional learning. That's why I wanted to be a teacher when I went into my teacher prep program. But then through that program, I met... um, a teacher and a, I guess she was studying to be an SLP at that time, who was the head of what we called the reading clinic, which was basically one-on-one tutoring located in a medical office setting. Um, And what it did was served kids with several disabilities who also struggled with reading. and it was at the campus of the children's hospital. So it was a really neat kind of crossover because you got to work with so many different children um, and really differentiate instruction specifically for kids with significant reading disabilities. Um, And so that's kind of where I fell in love with the reading part of teaching the most um, and where I started kind of learning what was and what was not effective Um, what could really support learners with, you know, a lot of needs could support the kids in my student teaching classroom as well. Um, And so from there is where I started to, you know, really dive into literacy as kind of a specialty um, in education, which I wasn't really expecting when I went into college and when I like started practicums. Um, But then I kind of found it along the way, which was awesome. Yeah, I can totally relate to um, not expecting um, literacy to become such a big focus um, in my education career. And 
um, it kind of falling in my lap in my um, in my um, training. So that's awesome as well that you had that opportunity to work with students with um, many different needs and being able to see that because um, I came from that perspective too of being trained to think that if it works for a student with a disability, it should work for everyone, right? Um, and you know if we're training special educators that special educators are, should be general educators right like classroom teachers like because all of our children are different whether they have a recognized label or not so um and i love that aspect that you bring to your social media channel like um where you talk about the social emotional side of learning and how much it really does impact um our learners um, and it can be sometimes more of the block than the academic, yeah. um, you know, aspect. And so I'm, I cannot wait to hear you talk more about all those topics. So let's rewind though. That's what brought you to reading. Do you remember learning how to read? Who taught you? I honestly don't remember learning to read. And that was a huge wake up call when I like entered the world of education um, and people started asking me that question. I was like, oh, I, I don't remember how to read or how I learned to read. And that felt, you know, surprising. I, I hadn't reflected on that before until I was asked that question as an adult. Um, and I realized like how lucky I was because so many people did have a really difficult experience learning to read. It was something that took years and years and years. It was something that felt like pulling teeth. It was something that they didn't have a lot of self-efficacy about for a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, I knew people growing up that struggled to read, um, but I guess I didn't really think about my own learning in that scenario, I suppose. Um, I, you know, I wasn't there yet. So it was pretty much a wake-up call, I guess, to me when I learned, like, hey, it's it's weird that, like, maybe you don't remember how to read. And, like, if you don't remember how to read, probably wasn't, you know, a big struggle. But there's so many people who it is a big struggle for. And so, like, as teachers, if you're a teacher who didn't struggle learning to read growing up, like, that's something that you have to be empathetic to and also like think about with your instruction, um, not only how you teach reading, but how you talk about the process of learning to read with kids. You know, this is something that's really difficult. This is something that changes your brain. This is something that requires a lot of heavy lifting and like that's okay. And it might feel harder or simpler for different people and that's okay as well. But like we're going to support you and we're going to get you to be a reader no matter what. Um, and so that's something that as a teacher, I really needed to like ingrain within myself that like, this is actually really challenging for people. And like, I need to validate that for kids and parents. Yeah. And as you were saying that, I'm like, yeah, that's so true. Absolutely. Right. Mindful teacher, Rachel, like really yeah. bringing us to the social emotional aspect. So I totally expect that out of you, but I also was like, wait a minute, you're right. And maybe that's why that disconnect, because I feel like, I mean, there's small things I remember about learning how to read, like certain books and texts that were repeatedly read with me, people who were doing some of the tasks with me that I remember. 
um, but not really the whole process of learning how to read. And maybe that's why when I got to teachers college like training and preparation, um, I just took whatever they told me and didn't truly understand um, that's not really how I should be teaching, you know, um, because my actual coursework from my um, graduate degrees in education were not what trained me in the science of reading. It was my dyslexia um, training as a tutor um, that I got that. But I think, you know, you just made me think about that, like, oh, well, that's why teachers don't remember. <laughs> Uh, right. And I exactly. always thought about that for parents, but I'm like, oh, yeah, us teachers too. <laughs> we forgot. Yep, exactly. And like, I find that, you know, there are some amazing teachers out there who have dyslexia or like also struggle to learn how to read. But like, a lot of the teachers I met, like, really loved school and school was a very safe place for them. And, you know, they didn't struggle too much at school growing up. And so, you know, working with children with different needs than that feels very different. And also you kind of put this trust into the education that you're getting and the coursework that you're doing and the student teaching experiences that you have to be like, oh yeah, like this is how I learned to read, but like, or this is how I did math, or this is what I was focused on when I was six. Like you don't remember because it was like not a traumatic experience to you, but it can be for some children and like it shouldn't have to be. Um, so, but you got to be a teacher to those kids too. I totally, that's exactly what's going through my brain. Like, I feel like you just expressed exactly my thought process. I was like, oh yeah. And we all love reading so much. That's why we became teachers that like, it's not like we don't want to be empathetic, but we just have no not no, but like very little connection to that experience. And, you know, we were the adults or children that played school, right? Like school was joyful for us. That's why we chased the school and said, we're coming back. <laughs> we weren't like one of those kids that are like, deuces, uh, 12 years is all you're getting from me. Maybe another four in college. We came back because we loved it so much. And so, yeah, that is absolutely a huge barrier you know, for us as teachers that we have to consciously, you know, reach across and try to understand. Um, thank you for that. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> um, okay, so our listeners may recognize you from Instagram where I got to learn about your work as a first grade teacher. And if you guys don't know, Rachel's social media handle is Mindful Teacher Rachel for listeners that want to follow you. You have so much valuable content out there for teachers and parents. What inspired you to start sharing resources online? So it mostly started during COVID. My first year teaching was the 2020-2021 school year. Um, so that was a really obviously challenging time for all teachers and families with children out there. Um, and I was really, really isolated and teaching at a school that used curriculum that I wasn't used to because I moved from um, Nashville to Thailand to New York. And and New York is like notoriously a balanced literacy place or was. Um, and so I was really kind of stricken by the, I guess, disalignment of the things that we were doing. And I was like, wait, really? Is this happening in lots of classrooms? Like we had a separate phonics time. And then 
a separate guided reading time, but the phonics didn't track along with the guided reading. So like the kids weren't using the phonics in the books because it didn't apply yet. You know, they were expected to have all these high frequency words or more challenging words than the phonics that they had. Um, So they didn't see any crossover because those were completely separate. Writing was completely separate. Um, And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like our kids are struggling and it's not because we're on the computer. Like that's one thing. But like I could teach a kid to use a computer. I'm a a zillennial. I'm a a Gen Z millennial. So like I can teach a kid to use a computer. But like there's something deeper here. And so that's why I started sharing a lot of the stuff I learned about dyslexia, about reading, about self-advocacy when it comes to reading and how that impacts like social emotional learning, about um, executive functioning skills and how that aligns with reading. Um, And like I would randomly get weird massive viral videos that I was like, I was literally in my pajamas making this. Like I guess I can make a lot of videos now because you have seen me at my absolute like most disheveled. So literally sitting in my tiny little room in New York with my cat. Like, so then I was like, well, you know, people seem to like this. People seem to be learning from this. I have my, you know, group of 20-ish children that I love to support. But like, there's so many people out here struggling right now. And there's so many people out here struggling to teach kids to read and so many kids struggling to read. And that is not only because of the pandemic, but like because of everything. Like it's it's not it wasn't because of the pandemic. Um, and so from there, I just kind of kept sharing stuff. I felt like it was a really, really great community. I felt like, you know, I was giving parents of struggling readers some hope that like, oh, wait. I can reach them. These kids will read. Um, And it was a time where there just wasn't a lot of hope. There wasn't a lot of hope in education. And I kind of, it was, it was hopeful for me, like to be making the content. So that was like a little, it wasn't altruistic at all. Like I very much enjoyed doing it, but um, that's kind of how it got started. And I just kind of built from there and made a lot of really great friends that, you know, are also in this community. That was really important to me during the time where I was in New York because not a lot of the teachers were, quote unquote, speaking the same language as me in terms of supporting children and supporting readers. And like the PD I was going to was so awful. I would like come home and like cry about it because it was just like, why are they telling us to do this? It makes no sense. It's wasting so much time. Um, you know, it's, it's a disservice to children. It's a disservice to my class. And I really needed that community during that time. And I think there are so many places where people still need that community because they are in kind of this bubble of people that, you know, have just been sticking to the status quo when it comes to teaching, reading, and don't really have evidence to back the practices that it's like, oh, well, this is just how it's done. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, why? Why is it done that way? Like, who said? And what is the evidence behind that? Yeah, I absolutely think that um, it was not a hopeful time in the pandemic. And so if parents or educators or anybody who needed your resources found you, I'm sure they were so grateful for it. Um, And as a person who was just like truly anti-social media for many reasons, and I still am, 
like my child will not see TikTok for a long time. <laughs> um, so in that way, I still am. But I think for us parents and educators and people who um, see that there's a need for change, but we're in communities where the change hasn't happened, we need this. Like, I need this. We need te Mindful Teacher Rachel. We need all of the people that are on social media. We still need you guys. It is still a very sad time in education. And it's really sad for me to say this. Um, but, you know, the teachers are leaving, right? Like, I'm so grateful, Mindful Teacher, you're still there. I left. I had to leave for my child, right? Like, because I'm a single parent. I just could she couldn't do kindergarten online. And I go to IEP meetings. It just wasn't going to literally work at all um but i think that um we still need hope and um you know educators and parents are starting to feel hopeless that's why there's this mass of homeschoolers not to say that homeschooling is bad i absolutely um was happy to have the opportunity to homeschool but um i also still believe in public schools right i do believe in public schools and i think that um this time um, is not the time for us to be quiet um, and that these social media platforms are the way to make sure that the information gets in the right ears, which is everybody, right? <laughs> everybody needs to hear this, like you said, and your post, like I think it was today, um, because it is like, it's just, it's, it's, it's been coming. It's time. Let's have the conversation right now across the board, not just in elementary school, um, you know, professional developments, not just for parents of young children like everyone. So I am 100% there and I am so grateful for, because I feel like I'm just jumping in this game and creating Dear Reading Teacher was really an outlet. So I stopped talking to the same three people in my life about <laughs> what I'm so passionate about. And um, like, I just, I need an outlet. <laughs> and so I, I, I really understand where you're coming from. And I think um, it's so helpful. And so I'm glad that you did it in your pajamas or not in your pajamas, like however you're gonna do it. I just feel like people want the information and we don't have to make it always sexy. They just want information. Um, so I'm grateful for you. Um, all right, next question. And this is the million dollar question for this episode. How should parents or educators who want to educate their parents, right, filter through all the buzzwords to find the best science of reading or SOR is the acronym sometimes parents you might see, aligned resources? This is super tricky and it's gotten a lot more treacherous, I would say, in the past like year, year and a half because now it's popular. Um, and so, of course, everybody wants to make a book. But I feel like <laughs> that is like totally not what the science of reading is about. Like it's not – the science of reading in itself is just research. It's a, it's a compilation of research. So like it's literally not for sale. Um, and it was kind of a rally against these big curriculums that were being sold for millions and millions and millions of dollars that researchers were still like, wait, why are you buying this? Like, why are you spending money on this? Because there's no evidence to show that it is effective. Um, and so, but like, they looked pretty and like, 
the idea of children being joyful reading is like very enticing to people who have that purchasing power, I suppose. Um, but like, you don't have to have a degree in developmental psychology. You don't have to have a degree in neuroscience. You don't have to have a degree in education. You don't have to have a degree in speech language pathology to have that social, that purchasing power. And like, probably none of those people do have that purchasing power because they are not, you know, politicians really, um, or like up there in the school board, they're kind of quote unquote, the boots on the ground. Um, and like we don't have the personality type for that. Um, and so what I like to think about when I am like looking for a research source or um, when I'm kind of vetting a resource or giving reasoning back to people who ask me like, hey, is this good? Um, it, it really boils down to a handful of things. The first thing is how they're using the term science of reading. Are they saying like, this is the science of reading? Or are they saying things like, you know, this is evidence-based, this is based in the science of reading? Um, are they referencing specific science of reading things like the um, simple view of reading, like Hollis Scarborough's reading rope, like Nancy Young's ladder of reading? Um, you know, just as a start, but then later things like, are they referencing Natalie Wexler and Daniel Willingham in terms of comprehension, in terms of that? Are they, rep are they you know, referencing Stanislas Dehaene in terms of a neuroscience perspective? Um, how are they using the term dyslexia? Um, you can weed out kind of a lot of stuff because they simply are just popping in those buzzwords. And a great example is... Lucy Calkins just started her new venture, I guess. It's called like Moss Flower or something. And she is like a prime example of people, of someone who's like, well, now I know. So I'm just going to throw around these terms and like, they're not used properly. Um, One of my Instagram friends watched a series that she did along with some other colleagues at Heinemann about decodable readers and it was just so disjointed and they were throwing around these terms in a way that like people who actually have spent a lot of time you know making decodable readers truly evidence-based and truly decodable and following a scope and sequence like they wouldn't use so I like to think about the fact that science, the science of reading is, it's not a thing. It's not a curriculum, it's research. And then what research was used to back something. So the first thing is how those terms are used. Are they just kind of like chat GPT in there basically? Um, the second thing. Can we just pause it, for that? I just, yeah, that's hilarious. Number one. <laughs> Is that Chad can be seated? I absolutely think that's what happened. Like I because I read the description of Moss Flower and I was like, this is this just doesn't make sense. And so what I think parents have to do is they have to understand those words. They have to get yes. a glossary. They have to get um a textbook, right? Like 
um, they have to get a website that has the glossary, right? Like, and we can link mm -hmm. reputable ones um, where yes. they understand the vocabulary so they're not confused by someone who's throwing it out in ways that don't make sense. And don't second guess yourself because if it doesn't make sense right. to you, probably won't make sense to anyone else because it was chat GPT. <laughs> that's hilarious. I'm sorry. That's exactly. <laughs> well, and like also don't feel bad for like questioning yourself when it comes to this because, you know, people who are spending millions of dollars on curriculum are making bad choices, are making choices that are like not evidence-based and are basically like tricked by the jargon as well. So like, it's hard. It's difficult. Um, there are lots of great, like, other kind of advocates out there and teachers that have been doing a really good job um, compiling, like, glossaries of science of reading words or researchers or um, books. Um, I recently did one with a couple of my friends of, like, all the books that we've read that we really like the best. And then one of my friends did one that's, like, an alphabet glossary of like great researcher names to look up there's that there's other ones that are just like a glossary of terms um and a lot of the books are easier to access like from a a non-education standpoint than I think we think they are like I'm rereading this one right now um the science of reading in action it was just sitting on my bed but that one's super easy to access and has really accessible terminology in there and it's like a really quick reference guide um so this year like we had a couple of new teachers on our team and I was like here are the books that you need to read this summer like I gave you the simple ones though because like I don't expect you to like do tons of self-pd that that's like that's something that I would do for myself because I am a nerd but um I don't expect other people to do that so um there are tons out there that are very much accessible to parents and people who are like education world lay people like it's it, it doesn't have to be overcomplicated you don't have to be a neuroscientist to you know understand what is evidence-based and what is not um and so like I don't want anyone to feel like oh like this you know science and this research like you know that's pretty highfalutin that's kind of intimidating like it's not um and you know I feel like that's part of my job is to communicate that to parents and to people who have never heard these terms before um, and, and to broaden that access because everybody should be able to have this information. Um, so that's a really big deal for me, just how the terminology is being used. Um, and I see things all the time that are like hashtag SOR, hashtag science of reading. Um, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Um, so it, it is treacherous out there, but um, just even a little bit of digging can really help you, especially with those terminology pieces. The second one for me is who is making the resource and what is their specific training? Um, and so like, yes, we want someone from a person, something from a person who's highly educated, but just because someone has their master's or even their PhD doesn't necessarily mean that they have been versed in this. Um, because we know so many universities are still 
teaching things that aren't evidence-based. And whether that's because, um, you know, they're teaching to what's in the classrooms, which is balanced literacy, or because they're teaching um, things like, uh, you know, it's it's more research-based. It's not applicable, but it, it's research that is like Marie Clay. Um you know, the universities, there's there's actually a very limited set of schools that have degree programs that are approved by the International Dyslexia Association. So if you have a PhD from, you know, Columbia in the Teachers College and you know that that's associated with Lucy Calkins, like I might question that research or that resource because that's a school that I know, you know, does a lot of balanced literacy things. And so things I look for are, you know, do they have extra training specifically with students students with dyslexia? Have they gone through an Orton-Gillingham training? Have they gone through a letters, L-E-T-R-S training, which is Lewis Emotes? Um, those things are really important things to look for because that means that they have had access to someone teaching them the, you know, explicit how the brain learns to read, and then here are evidence-based practices linked to that information. Um, so that's something that I look for in particular. Um, and that's something like I have questioned going back and getting a higher degree because I want to go to a school where I'm like going to learn stuff that I know is evidence-based. So I want to go to an IDA accredited school um, for a higher ed degree. Um, but there's only a handful of choices. And so that's pretty limiting and um, a little bit sad, I think, that, you know, we have all of these people who are, you know, getting their, I mean, like you said, like getting their master's in education and like they still don't know how to teach kids how to read or like they have been taught to teach kids to read in a way that like doesn't work for most children. Um, so that's something. Where Who is making the resource and where have they gotten their training? Um, what kind of training have they done is really important. I absolutely agree with that because I know for a fact that my master's degree in elementary education, okay, we learned graphene, phoneme, and morpheme. I remember that and nothing else. <laughs> that was useful. I have a master's degree in special education pre-K to eighth grade, mild to moderate disabilities. I should know how to teach anyone how to read, right? Like you and that um, practicum. Nothing about reading instruction or evidence. Well, here, let me, let me rephrase. We learned about evidence-based instruction overall, right? We learned about um, explicit instruction. We learned the framework of quality, effective instruction for everything but still nothing to deal with literacy um, and what I got in a whole nother bucket of training. <laughs> this hand's all the way over here. Um, from Wilson, from the Wilson um, yeah. reading system, right? I became a dyslexia tutor and that's the only saving grace where I wouldn't be with everyone else in the other you know, group of what I should have learned in college. Um, so yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that, um, that is a perspective I never kind of really thought about. I knew it in my heart, but like, I guess 
I'm not one to look for what degree you have, but I also wasn't one to look for what extra training have you had. So I'm going to start there, especially when it comes to literacy. You're right. Anything else you wanted to make sure parents know when it comes to, you know, looking for science of reading resources? Um, well, so another thing is I like to make sure that the person or the shop or, you know, the curriculum company that's selling stuff claiming to be based in the science of reading um, is not also selling stuff that we know has totally been disproven. Like, both things can't be true here. Um, so if I notice that, you know, I'm buying these decodable passages from Teachers Pay Teachers, and the seller also has all these passages that are guided reading levels. Mm, I'm going to question that because not only like ethically is that a little odd, but how much do they truly know about decodable passages versus guided reading levels if they're still keeping those guided reading levels up? Um, you know, and, and maybe it's so that they can, you know, Teachers are struggling out here. I want everybody to make the money that they need to make, but I don't want kids to be affected negatively in the process of that. That's not fair. And so that's something that I'm looking for too. For example, I don't purchase like anything from Heinemann anymore. They had a lot of PDs. They had a lot of textbooks. Like I had to buy textbooks from them in college, but they are the company that continues to sell and promote units of study on Fountas and Pinnell Classroom, which have been time and time again proven to be ineffective and, like, in many cases, harmful to children. So, like, I will not buy from that company. And that's, like, kind of how I suppose, like, uh, ideal capitalism should work anyways. Like, when I studied economics in high school, like, oh, the invisible hand, like if a company is not doing the right thing, you don't buy from them um, in an ideal world. But th that doesn't really happen um, because we have things like massive marketing budgets that make companies look like they're doing really awesome things or the convenience is an issue and equity is an issue. Like there's so many levels there. But um, I won't buy from that company anymore because I know that, they promote things that have been proven ineffective. So that's another thing to think about. Are they selling two really opposing different products that don't make sense together and simply can't coexist in the same kind of instruction? So Rachel, you convinced me. I really didn't want to give my writer's workshop books up because there's some good stuff in there. But you're right. It's so ethically wrong. It's so wrong. And they don't want to, like, change their perspective, right? Like, and say, scrap all of this part, right? And we'll say this. Like, they're not even being honest, really. And so... Mm -hmm. I got what I needed out of that. <laughs> I'm throwing it away. I'm not, I'm right. just going to recycle it. I mean, I'm going to recycle it. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like, 
uh, I would never buy new Heinemann stuff, but I do have some old stuff that I was like, oh, well, you know, I can implement some parts of this. <laughs> but no, I really think that to, in order for us to have a fresh start, which is I think what you're basically getting to is we need a fresh start. We need to, like our brains are overwhelmed with all the confusion that's been going around for decades that the only way for us to start making ethical decisions um, and start making clear decisions is to start making those decisions. And they're hard. That's the, that's, I don't want to tell me. Yes. I spent money on those books though, but okay. I feel you. I feel you. I know. And it's our hard earned teacher money. Like it, it's, it's, it, it's, our hard-earned teacher money or our hard-earned college student money for sure. Like it's so difficult and it's, it's really disappointing too, because you'd think, Oh my gosh, like you are a multi-million dollar company or you are a teacher's paid teacher seller with hundreds of thousands of followers. You have the power in this situation to make a decision to make a change. And you're not doing that. And that to me just says that you don't care about kids. Like you don't, you can't, it, both things cannot be true. Right. Fourth one is, and this is a little bit different because it doesn't necessarily apply to all resources. But the words scope and sequence are really important and alignment are really important. So when you're buying decodables or when you're looking at decodables, if something says this is a decodable, okay, but like a decodable for whom? Is it a decodable for someone who has been taught all of the phonics rules? Is it just a decodable for CBC words? What high frequency words do they expect you to have? So if something says, you know, with aligned scope and sequence or with a scope and sequence aligned to Wilson or with a scope and sequence aligned to X Orton-Gillingham program. Um, that is something that's super, super valuable because it gives you an idea of what students should know and be able to do and in what order. Um, and a lot of decodables, especially the ones that I review that like say they're decodable um, or, you know, ones from leveling systems don't have a clear scope and sequence. And that's really important for explicit systematic instruction. You can't be systematic if you don't have an outline of what students should be able to do in what order. Um, and that should be like cumulative. So increasing in difficulty, but also like reviewing back what students have already learned. So like if I haven't taught long A spellings yet, my book shouldn't have any of that yet. That's not fair for students and you simply just haven't taught it yet. Um, so that's something that's really important. And then like the word alignment is also really important because you want something that the phonics is aligned to the books, is aligned to the writing. Kids really can't make sense of instruction if they don't see how it connects to anything. And that was the problem with my school in New York. We had Wilson Foundations Phonics, but we were doing a completely separate guided reading program and they were not aligned together. And so because of that, 
the kids weren't using the phonics skills in the books. They simply couldn't because they weren't aligned. Um, and so that's something that's really important. And that's something that's really important as a teacher. When I'm planning my lessons, I'm thinking, mm, how is my phonemic awareness aligned to my phonics? If I'm, teach if I'm talking about short vowels, my phonemic awareness stuff that I'm warming up students with should be about short vowels. How is my decodable aligned to my phonics? It should only have short vowel sounds in it. When we're doing spelling, it should only have short vowel sounds. Um, if I'm expecting my students to do their own writing, the things that I'm expecting them to spell correctly are the CVC words, those short consonant vowel consonant words like cat or dog. Those are the words that I expect them to be spelled properly, um, even if they don't sound exactly like they're spelled, because those are the ones that I've taught them about. Um, I don't expect them to spell long vowel words correctly yet. I'm not going to like count off for that or make them correct it because they haven't learned it. I haven't taught it to them yet. And it's all aligned together. So that is something that is really important. And I think like once you know it and once you see it, it just makes so much sense. And it makes planning so much easier when you know what the scope and sequence is and then you know that everything is aligned. Like it, it makes planning a dream as a teacher. And I never thought I'd say that. I was a person when I taught in New York who literally spent all of Sunday planning. Like I worked a full day on Sunday doing planning to make it work for my students. Um, and, you know, with this idea of a scope and sequence and that alignment, it, it's just so more clear what I need to do and what I need to prepare for my students. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that checklist. I feel like parents need somewhere to start, right? And I think um, then accessing additional resources starts feeling more accessible and less scary when they know like, what are the basic foundational things I need to be filtering all of these resources through? So thank you for doing that work. Um, like you said, it's treacherous work out there, Rachel, and I've tried doing it in my own way. Uh, different resources, but I think um, you hit the nail on the head. Thank you for that. And it's pushing me um, to do some decision-making that I hadn't um, decided to you do yet. So I'm excited about that. What exciting, <laughs> what exciting um, science of reading-based resources do you want to share? So one of the coolest things that I think um, – that I found recently, it's it's really kind of threefold. The first thing, um, there's this really great YouTube channel that's by the Reading League called Reading Buddies, which is like a Sesame Street on steroids that's really focused on phonemic awareness, early phonics. And they're like 20 minute episodes and they're totally free. So that's something that I've been loving lately. Um, I watch them sometimes in my small groups in language arts. And one of my kids today literally said, learning TV is my favorite TV. And I was like, great, perfect. I love learning TV too. Um, so that is a really great resource that's totally free. Um, another thing that I have 
really, really liked to use are the UFLI free materials. That's the University of Florida Literacy Institute. They have a like handbook that you can purchase, but everything that goes with the handbook and that you can use independently of the handbook is online for free, um, which is super fun. They have lots of their high frequency words up there. They have um, a like letter tile board that you can use as a blending board, which is really nice. Um, I really like the Institute for Multisensory Education, IMSE, free resources. I think they do a freebie every Friday. Um, so those are lovely. And then I said threefold, but then I thought of another one. Um, everything from Reading Rockets is super accessible when it comes to research and understanding evidence-based practices. That's something that I recommend to parents a lot. Like, hey, check out this article on phonemic awareness. It, it, it It's a really nice resource that unpacks some of those buzzwords that we were talking about earlier. Um, and they have a lot of just great ideas, great um, insight into like free things you can do at home. Um, I always like to say that if it's for free, it's for me. Um, so I'm totally that person when it comes to my classroom. My kid's favorite game right now is called Vowel Slap. And it's literally two sticky notes with two different vowel sounds for phonemic awareness that we're learning about. And they have to slap the one with the sound they hear. Like literally so free and so for me. Um, and there's lots of games like that that they kind of have inspired me to do or recommend to parents or um, kind of jump off of if you kind of feel like you're at a point where you feel stuck. So that's a fourth resource, readingrockets.org. That's really, really nice. I'm so glad you brought up readingrockets.org because I think that was literally when I was in the classroom and trying to connect the dots, right? Like between all these buckets and my Wilson bucket, um, they're the mm -hmm. only ones that had like videos of like, so their video resources in particular that I felt were so meaningful on how I could communicate to parents. So I absolutely think that parents should totally do all the resources Rachel just uh, mentioned, but the video resources on what effective instruction really looks like, because I forgot the lady that stars in a lot of their videos, but she's so sweet and kind. I am intrigued by the tricky phonics books you talk about in your posts. Can you tell podcast listeners more? Yes. So um, I started, you know, a list of books that I felt like were phonics and language, essentially phonics and language picture books, um, using stories to introduce phonics concepts. Um, and from that, I kind of was like, oh, wait, there's like a hole here. Like, I'd really like a book to represent, to introduce this sound spelling or this spelling rule that's really tricky. Um, and so then I like started to make books but like, I just started for my class. Like I, I just made it for my class. And the first one I did was about the schwa sound because I wanted my kids to be able to read multisyllabic words, but they couldn't do that. And they couldn't get past that part in the scope and sequence if they didn't understand schwa as like an abstract concept. 
so I made that book and then I was like oh wait like I can actually make this for other people um so ever since then I just create this kind of running list of like ooh, what's a tricky phonics concept that I think would be really well introduced through a picture book um because that's so helpful for my kiddos especially like k12 who are really really learning the meat of reading especially you know in second grade and even third grade with like the morphemes and that kind of layer of spelling but a lot of those concepts are really really abstract um, they're very hard to break down concretely to them. They feel less consistent because they are like a larger scope. Um, and so that's kind of why I started making my own picture books for my class. But then I was like, oh, wait, I can share these with other people. So I have like in my bio link a whole list of phonics and language picture books that I feel like do a really good job introducing different um, phonics and phonemic awareness phonemic awareness concepts but then I also have added my own books to that collection and I'm working on another one right now I just finished all the illustrations for it so I'm hopeful that it will come out on the anniversary of my first book which was last September so crossing my fingers congratulations on um this new book that's coming out um I absolutely agree and think that early readers, young readers really love picture books, right? Like they love it. You already have their attention and engagement. Um, and so I think it's a beautiful and smart way. And um, I need to really explore Linktree because I didn't know you have, you said you have a list of ones that are already published books that are for different tricky concepts. Yes. Um, so there's ones about like different phonemic awareness concepts. Mm -hmm. Like um, there's like one Q -U. My... Yes, there's QU, there's, you know, Magic E, there's a bossy R one. Um, that's about literally an R who's really bossy, which is hilarious. That is and hilarious. the kids think that's so funny. Um, so I kind of started compiling these books because I wanted something more relatable to my kids to like introduce the concept and then ever since I started reading those to them I mean they see those things everywhere they're like that's a bossy R that that bossy R is there or look at that magic E you know jumping the consonant and bopping the vowel on the head like they just interact with text literally just around the room that they see so much more because they've heard the story about it and it's so memorable to them and it like really congeals with their like level of working memory and their um long-term memory as well I think it's like not just for early readers I think it's for all humans we want a story like we want a story yes. to help make things catchy and memorable because I just tutor students with dyslexia right these people have dyslexia right they've been diagnosed um that QU thing is just throws them all off students with dyslexia every time I bring one of those QU picture books and I have a few of them um it's just sticks it doesn't matter if they're 13 an adult when I try to explicitly teach with my I'm engaging with my engaging voice they're like uh-huh yeah I get it I get it but they do not remember it as soon as you bring the silly story with the pictures, they really do remember it. And um, that actually used to be 
something that I felt bad about as a Wilson tutor, because that's not allowed. That's not how you're supposed to teach. Um, but I've learned <laughs> since the pandemic that, you know, um, that, you know, even your checklist for parents is kind of like what I've come to as an educator, where like, I have my own checklist, right? I'm trying to meet students where they are, but also um, go through the Wilson checklist, but also meet them where they are. And if they're like, that QU concept is just dry and boring to me, then that's where they are. And I need to make it more exciting for them. So I absolutely think that um, tricky phonics books, like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't investigate enough before I asked that question, but I'm so excited to go back to your Instagram and use that list um, because I think all, all learners will benefit that from that, including our students with dyslexia, um, no matter how old they are. Like, I mean, while picture books might be more appropriate and feel more age appropriate for a first grader, um, I think my 11 year olds have appreciated it when, cause it felt stressful. QU was stressful until I brought the Q and you call it quits or whatever that book is called. Yes, exactly. And it feels fun. And that's like how it is with schwa, especially when I first taught that concept of first grade, they were like, what? Absolute crickets. They never remembered that word. And then like last year, we did an end of the year survey. And one of the questions was, what's one thing that you learned in first grade that you'll never forget? And one of my students wrote schwa and like drew the little symbol for schwa that I that's like the illustration in my book and I was like oh my gosh well I've made it like I can die happy now that 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 was it that was all I needed there oh you will forever be in that child's mind as a teacher who taught him schwa um that's awesome thank you for sharing that I have one last question for you what is your favorite children's book currently and why Hard question, I know, for a first grade teacher, but try. I know. Um, okay, so I will say that this year I started, I read this book midway through last year because I think that's just like when I got it, but I like started the year off with this book this year. Um, it's the, it's from Denise Eid, Eid, I don't know how you say her last name because I've only ever read it. Um she does the logic of English and she wrote the book uncovering the logic of English, but she wrote this picture book for kids called how your brain learns to read. Um, and it has like factoids for adults in it, but, um, it talks to kids about their letterbox in their brain and all the different parts of their brain that are working together as they read. And it was just such a cool, like the kids were asking such thoughtful questions about it. And like now when they are in group with me reading, they'll be like, oh, like, yes, like my sound part of my brain doesn't connect with the letter good yet. Like it's really hard for the letter U. Like they know that about themselves. And it's kind of created this um, almost metacognition that you have scholar I, first graders yes. like that is the true epitome of a scholar right like yes. wow they I got goosebumps teacher Rachel it just yeah it blew my mind because I read it halfway through the year last year so they were like oh yeah but like a lot of them were already pretty much reading so 
it, it didn't hit as well as it hit this year. And I, so I love that book. I think it's so cool. I think it pairs so well with the Uncovering the Logic of English book for teachers and Reading in the Brain by Stanislaus Dehane. Like those two pair so well with it as a picture book. And I think helping kids understand their brains, like that's what we're doing when we're teaching things like math strategies, like understanding like, oh, there's more than one way to get there. How did your brain do that? Um, When we're talking about social emotional learning, when we're talking about executive functioning, when we're talking about just like life skills in general, like having kids have an understanding of what their brain is doing um, is really valuable to them. Because again, I think it makes it really concrete. Um, Like this is what it's physically happening in this object that I like don't really have a lot of understanding about. Um, So I really love how that book sets kids up to like be metacognitive readers. Um, And I just thought it was so cool how it hit this year. So that's definitely like my fave right now. Um. I haven't read that book in a while, but I got to go back to it now. You got me excited. Okay, yay, new book. Thank you so much, Rachel, for your patience with my technology, um, for giving us your time. You can find Rachel on Instagram and Facebook as Mindful Teacher Rachel. All her links will be listed in the show notes. Any last thoughts for parents and families listening? Um, You are not alone. There are so many great resources out there that are, if not free, very accessible. And like your kids will learn to read like they're they They can get there and we can help them get there. Yes. All of us working together until the next chat. Happy reading fans. 